We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tonight, so if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. Let's read through this chapter together, and then I'll pray for us and we'll study it. Though I speak with tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. But now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall be known just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Father, as we come into this chapter, this wonderful definition and exhortation of love, we pray for a real move of your spirit. We ask that it would be fresh to us. If we have read it before many, many times, Lord, may it fall upon fresh ears, Lord, soft hearts. If it's new, Lord, may it have great impact. God, we pray that this wouldn't come in a heavy-handed way, in a legalistic way, but that we would come in contact with your love. As we sang about your love tonight, how great is your love, that your love would be magnified, then that we could become conduits of your love. We know it's love that really matters, and so many times we fall short, we miss it. So may there be clarity, and may you bring transformation in our lives. Have your way, in Jesus' name, amen. So consider this question with me. What really matters? It's something that we ponder from time to time, but what is it that really, really matters in our lives? Is it where you work? Is that what matters? Is that what has the greatest significance in your life? Is it how much money that you make? Is it your retirement? Is that what really matters in life? Is it the kind of car that you drive? Is it what other people think about you? Is it how many friends that you have on Facebook or followers that you might have on Twitter? Those things aren't what really matters in life, is it? This chapter answers the question for us. What really matters is love. It can be summed up in one word. Over 300 times in the scripture, the word love is used. The whole Bible is summed up in this truth, this principle of love. Over 300 times. God is love. The very essence of who he is. He describes himself as love. 
All of the commandments are summed up in this. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then, love your neighbor as yourself. It all comes back to love. It's what really, really matters. So as we go through these 13 verses, we're going to divide it up into three ways. The first three verses are the priority of love. Why is love so important? Then we're going to look at the virtue of love. What are the characteristics? What's the definition? What does love do? What does love not do? And then we're going to look at the permanence of love. But those are going to be the three things that we cover tonight. This is what I'm convinced of in my life and in your life is us being on, exhorted on love will not cause us to be more loving people. I think tonight you knew before you came what really mattered is to love the way that God loves. Deep down, that's what we aspire to. We've even gone through seasons where we've said, I am going to be a more loving person. I need to be more kind. I need to not behave rudely. Does it work? Do you become a more loving person? What happens in transformation is when we come in contact with the love of God. When we see that this is who God is, this is the way that God loves us, we embrace it, we understand it, we believe it, it impacts our soul, then we become a more loving person. That's what happened when you got saved. You realized God was gracious. You realized that God forgave all of your sin that he was crazy about you, that he was in love with you, that he created you, and all of a sudden, you started to have some love that you never had before. This kind of love, we can't generate in and of ourselves. We see that it's what matters. We see it's what is important, but it comes as we're connected through the vine. So as we go through this study, we're gonna focus on how every attribute of love is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is these things. And as we put our focus upon him, then he'll empower us to live in this loving way. So let's look at verse 1. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. The dream of every preacher, every teacher, is to have a golden tongue. To say the right word at the right time to have just the perfect illustration. We think, we read, we pray just to find that right illustration. If I could say it right, the right pause, the right inflection, if I had the right sounding voice, then that would really make the difference. Then that message would really have impact. You probably think of that sometimes when you're trying to reach people. If I present the gospel to them in this way, maybe they'll come to know Christ as their Savior. If I talk to my son or my daughter and I can just have the right argument, if it'll just make sense to them, I can convince them why dating this guy is such a bad, bad idea, right? But it doesn't come down to that. That's not what God's looking for. It's not really what God uses. It's not what you're longing for when someone is talking to you what you long for is for them to really love you, for them to really care about you, to be invested in you. Someone cannot be a great communicator, a great orator, but if they have love, they're gonna have far more impact in your heart and in your life. So when we're trying to share God's truth with people and we don't have God's love for them, we become an annoying sound. 
God says it's like a clanging cymbal. I'll share you, save you the experience of grabbing the drumstick tonight and going to the drums and just hammering that cymbal over and over and over again. The cymbal's great when it's in rhythm, when Mike Prouty's playing it the way that, that he does. But what if I just, while I was talking through the whole sermon tonight, just did that, just a clanging cymbal? Or how about fingernails on a chalkboard? Ooh, right? Or the grinding of teeth. Are you married to somebody who grinds their teeth, right? Man, grinding teeth is just an awful sound. That's what we become. Think of the most annoying sound. Ever been asleep? It's two in the morning and your neighbor's car alarm goes off and they don't go out to fix it and take care of it and it just goes off. Remember years ago, my wife and I's first house in downtown Colorado Springs, I don't know if they were out of town or what, but the alarm went off and the horn was honking and they let it go until finally the battery went dead. I mean, it literally went all night long. That was an annoying sound. I was tempted to do some very ungodly things that evening, right? We don't wanna be that. We don't wanna be that to somebody, do we? But that's what we become if we don't love them. And it's interesting when you look up this word in the Greek, which the New Testament was written, it's agape, which is God's love. It's unconditional love. In the Greek, there's four primary words for love. One describes the, the love that you have in a romantic relationship. One word describes the kind of love that you have for your children. Another describes the, the love that you have with a friend, a brotherly type of love. But then there's a separate word that's agape that speaks of God's unconditional love. So, so it's not just the worldly kind of love. We have, we have to have a really define love in, in our culture. It, it's God's love. It's, it's who God is. Without God's love for people, then we're just that sounding brass. We're just that clanging symbol. And we see the priority of love in these three verses. It's so clear, the priority of love, as we go through these first three verses. And that's the first point tonight, is the priority of love. And though I have the gift of knowledge and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. The context of this chapter is the church of Corinth is abusing the spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, chapter 14 deals with that, and then right in the middle is sandwiched in love. They've emphasized tongues. They've emphasized the gift of prophecy, but they forgot about love. They forgot if tongues isn't used in love, then there's no edification. And that's why Paul gives these examples, as he's saying, the gift of prophecy. So maybe God gives you insight into the future. Maybe God gives you that word of exhortation for someone to speak God's word boldly to them. What if you understood all mysteries? What if you could get into Daniel chapter 9 and really dissect it and really understand it and really understand the book of Revelation and these great mysteries of God? What if you had all knowledge? We live in a knowledge-crazed culture, don't we? It's amazing the kind of knowledge that we have at the tip of our, our fingers. It's amazing how much we crave and long for more degrees and more knowledge. What, what if you had all knowledge? Sometimes even in a biblical sense, it's not bad, but we desire knowledge. We want to know more of the word. We want to more, know more of who, who God is. 
These are good things. This is, this is good. But if we don't have love, we're nothing. And notice the way that that's phrased and that hit me. It says, I am nothing. So without agape, God's love towards people, I'm annoying. And then I really have no identity. I'm nothing. I don't have anything to be able to give anyone because I don't possess the love of God. Because what really matters? It's love. It doesn't matter what you do for work. It doesn't matter. You could have the greatest job on the planet or the worst job on the planet, but if you love God and you love people in the midst of that job, you're glorifying the Lord. Amen? That's what matters. When we get to that place where we've received God's love and we're extending God's love, we become something. If you have God's love and you're giving away God's love, no one can take that away from you. They can take your job, they can take your car, they can take your house, they can take your health, but you still have God's love. But without it, we're really nothing. And I think we really see that in our culture. We're, we're missing love, we're missing God's love, and so we're missing a core identity. Verse three, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So these are being said in three different ways. If I don't have love, I'm annoying. If I don't have love, I can have a lot of knowledge, but I'm nothing. Then I could be extremely giving. What verse three is saying is if you took all of your stuff, all of it, your house, your cars, your clothes, you said, I'm, I'm gonna sell it. I, I'm gonna ride the bus, give it away, to God's work, that'd be pretty phenomenal, wouldn't it? Whoa, just, you just gave, gave away everything for, for God's work. Then it goes even further. You're a martyr. You're burned at the stake, which was happening as Paul was writing these letters. But if it's not motivated by love, there's no profit in it. That's convicting. That's a good thing. God calls us to be giving. He calls us to stand up for, for our faith. But then he says, you know what? If you don't do this with love, there's no profit in it. Without God's love in the mix of good things, there's no profit. We're also a very profit-driven culture. Would you go to the gym and commit to some workout program if there was no profit, if there was no benefit? I don't even go to the gym if there's a, there is profit to it. You know what I'm saying? But of course I wouldn't go to the gym if there was no benefit from it. Would you, would you go on a diet if there was no benefit to it, if there, there, there was no profit? You're going to invest money with some financial advisor over years and years and years. It's less than what you put in before. No, there's got to be profit. We're a profit-driven society. And how much more so with the things of God? Let's sit in this for a little bit. It said, if you had faith to remove mountains... Not only knowledge, but faith to remove mountains. Faith is a good thing. God moves through faith. So, so amazing things that are going in and, and through your life. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. It profits you nothing. This scares me a little bit, and this is why. I could go through my life doing the, wrong, the right thing and come out with the wrong outcome because it wasn't filled with love. 
And sometimes as believers, we get good at the right thing. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to write my tithe check. I'm going to do this with my kids. I'm going to do this with my spouse. And we're checking off the boxes, but we've lost the love in the midst of the good actions. And the Lord's saying, there's something really missing here. There's no profit here. There's no benefit here. There's There's no outcome here because there's not real love. I remember when Hannah, our oldest daughter, was born. And it's a little overwhelming when you're preparing for the birth of your child. So we were reading about all of the necessary things that happens in the life of an infant, like how they're going to eat, how they're going to sleep, what kind of diapers they're going to wear, if they're going to have a pacifier, if they're not going to have a pacifier. And some of you are familiar with this. There's two very different camps on that. The simple thing of feeding a baby, you know? And I won't go into the two different philosophies, but basically both camps said if you don't do it exactly this way, your child's going to turn out to be an axe murderer. If you do not feed them this way, and if one, one book saying if you give them a pacifier, they are going to be ruined for life. And the other says if you don't give them a pacifier, they are going to be ruined for life. And I'm like, this is so stressful. You know, how, how can they both be right? And what, what do we do? And then I started to think about it and I go, you know what? I bet there's some moms that don't give their kids pacifiers that really love their kids and their kids turn out great because they love their kids. And there's probably some moms that give their kids pacifiers and they really love their kids and they turn out great. And there's probably some moms that got their kids on a strict sl- sleeping schedule and they love their kids and their tr- kids turn out great. And there's other moms that don't have a schedule at all and they love their kids and they turn out great. I think it's more about love, don't you? And we gotta remember that. We gotta remember that. It's about love. Without love in the equation, there's no benefit. There's no benefit. So we see the priority of love in these verses. Then we see love's virtues. What is love like? How can we define it? How can we understand it in a better way. Love suffers long and is kind. In this description of love, there's seven things that love is. Seven things that we find in the nature of love, and then eight things that love is not. If you were trying to describe a flavor of ice cream, I can relate to that. It's summer. It's ice cream season. This is ice cream season. I might describe to you, this is what the ice cream is, and this is what the ice cream is not. Last night, I tried some green mint ice cream. It was delicious, right? So God's going to describe what love is and what love is not. And the first thing about love and its virtue is it suffers long. It suffers long. Now, this doesn't come in the world's definition of love. The world's definition of love is you're in it as long as it feels good. Isn't you're in it as long as there's something for you. And God says, if you're going to love somebody, you're going to suffer long with them. Long suffering, to be patient with them. Some translations translate it, love is patient. Love has endurance. Love will go the distance. Notice that it doesn't say that we're loving long term to produce a change. I think a a lot of times we think, well, I'm going to suffer long with this person because my love is going to change them. No. God is calling us to suffer long with them because we love them, not because we're trying to change them. That's a big difference. 
You may be suffering long with your spouse because you're thinking, if I really love them and I stay committed to them, then I'm going to change them. Nope, you're not going to change them. Most likely, they're going to stay the same knucklehead till they die. If you're thinking, you know, I'm going to marry this guy and I'll change him, you know. No, you won't change him. That's only the Lord can change him. What God's calling you to do is you love him just the way he is. If you're not willing to do that, don't marry him. Because God's saying, that's what love really is. Well, I'm going to love this neighbor because if I love them, then they'll change. Nope, you love them right where they're at. You just, you suffer along with them. And that's a whole different commitment of love, isn't it? And God's asking us to do that for one another in relationships, all kinds of relationships, in our family, outside of our family. And when you have that kind of love, when you receive that kind of love, isn't it exciting? Isn't it nice to be loved? To go, you know, if I have a bad day, they're not going to give up on me. If I'm really grouchy, they're not going to trade me in for the new model, for the, for the new version. It's not like when they find out who I really am, then, then they're out of here. They're, they're committed to me in that way. Does Jesus love this way? Does he suffer long in his love for us? His love for the disciples is a great example of this. Because oftentimes the disciples didn't get it. Jesus clearly said, I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And they're like, he never said it. You know, he never, they never grasped it. And Jesus suffered long with them. He suffered long upon the cross. God is love, and he suffers long with us. How much suffering have I caused God? How patient has God been with me today? There's no end of God's love. It's amazing that he loves us in this way. Love is kind. So here's two things that love is. Love is kind. Church, love is kind. Isn't there a real lack of kindness in our culture today? We've lost the ability just to, to be kind to one another. Was Jesus kind? Absolutely. Where do we see some of his kindness come out? He addressed his mom as woman. And today, don't try that. Don't try that with your mom. It's almost condescending. But in Jesus' culture, it was a, a term of endearment. Even when he was trying to instruct his mom, this isn't the right time for me to turn water into wine, he addressed her as, as woman. When he was dying upon the cross, he, he looked down into her eyes and said, said, woman, it was a term of endearment. It was a term of love and respect. It was the kindness of Christ. The kids come to Jesus and the disciples are pushing him away. He doesn't have time for kids. And what does Jesus do? He picks them up and he blesses them. He was kind. I think if we were able to spend 24 hours with Jesus, we would experience some kind of kindness that would blow our mind that we haven't experienced from a human being. You've experienced Jesus being kind to you. He's the ultimate gentleman. He's just waiting. He's patient. He's there. He's long-suffering. He's not forcing himself upon you. He's kind. And when we experience his kindness, when we experience his gentleness, when we come in contact with it, then we can be a conduit of this kind of love. This is absolutely futile if we're not connecting with this with Jesus. If you don't know that Jesus is long-suffering with you, good luck being long-suffering with someone else. If you don't know that Jesus is kind to you, good luck being, being kind to, to someone else. Love, love is kind. Love doesn't envy. So now we start to see some of the things that love is not. 
Envy is dangerous and toxic. It was out of envy that they killed Jesus. It was out of envy that Saul went after King David. Envy can very quickly enter into our hearts, and when it does, it depletes us of love. Love rejoices in other people's success. Oh, praise the Lord. Look at how God blessed them. That's awesome. I'm so happy for them. Look at how talented they are. Look how gifted they are. Do you see Jesus walking around being envious? Doesn't fit into his character, does it? Oh man, look, everybody's talking about John the Baptist. That's a real bummer. Don't they realize I'm God in human flesh? He wasn't envious. See, see, love is confident and comfortable in who God's made you to be and who God has made me to be. I don't have to be someone else. I can rejoice in what God is, is doing in, in their life. Easier said than done. We need to be careful that envy doesn't slip into the back door of our hearts. Love doesn't parade itself. Again, we live in a culture that parades itself. We really live in a culture that has the absence of agape love. So love doesn't go around boasting, saying, well, look at me. Look, look at what I've done. Again, Jesus is the example of this. Jesus' life wasn't a parade. He lived it in humility. He came to serve. It was typified when he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Who rides in on a donkey? The generals would ride in upon a stallion. Jesus didn't parade himself. Love doesn't parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love is not full of ourselves. Love is not prideful. Jesus had the right to be puffed up. If anybody could have walked this earth and said, I'm all of that, Jesus could have. He was. He is. But he didn't come in that manner. He came in humility. Love does not behave rudely. How many times do I fall short of love? How many times do I behave rudely? But love doesn't behave rudely. Jesus didn't behave rudely. To the point where he's getting spit on, getting his beard ripped out, being beaten brutally, he didn't retaliate back. He didn't retaliate in rudeness. He retaliated in self-control. He returned kindness even when he was being crucified. As we go through this list, maybe there's one that really stands out to you. That the Holy Spirit goes, that's for you. Love suffers long. That's what I want you to take away from this Bible study. God's patient with you. Be patient with others. Kindness, okay. Love's not puffed up, but look for one attribute of love that God really wants you to hold on to. Love doesn't seek its own. Love isn't selfish. Selfishness is the enemy to love. Philippians 2 tells us to not be concerned with our own interests, but to be concerned with the interests of others. Look outward instead of inward. The world's definition of love is a lot of times we're just using people to get what we want. They're just an object of our selfishness, and we call it love. That's lust. But love doesn't seek its own. This is something to think about. Love is not provoked. It doesn't say that love doesn't provoke others, which is true. If we're a loving person, we don't go around trying to push people's buttons. But what this says is love is not provoked, which means someone's trying to push my buttons, but I'm not allowing them to. One of the things that's amazing about children, and all children do it, me included, I did it to my parents, but kids study us, right? They go, okay, where's dad's buttons? I'm not just going to find one button, but I'm going to find all of his buttons. 
and picture it like an elevator. Then I'm not just going to hit floor number one or floor number two. I'm going to do all six floors at the same time, right? Just to see if I can get dad to go and blow up. And when do they start doing this? At about 18 months. It's phenomenal, right? They're just looking and going, how can I master this situation and get control of this situation? And everybody says the terrible twos. No, the terrible twos are just warming up for the tremendous threes. They're just building their arsenal for when they're three years old, right? And so it takes a tremendous amount of love to go, you know what? I know that you are trying to provoke me right now, but I'm not going to allow you to provoke me. Wow, that's a Holy Spirit moment. That's a Jesus moment. And that's the way Jesus lived. You see the Pharisees coming at him. They're trying to provoke him. They're saying, you don't even know who your dad is and all this kind of stuff. And he just lets it roll off. You're always going to find people that are going to try to provoke you. It might be on the road. They're the worst, right? Oh, man, you know. They're gating you, gating you, gating you, gating you. And you got the kids on the car, in the car. And you're like, oh, man. And then they fly by you and cut right in front of you. And they're just saying, bring it. Oh, man. Okay, love isn't provoked. If we remove the button, they can't push it, right? It's, again, it's easier said than done. But it's something that love is not. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. I think this will be transformational if you'll consider it for just a moment. Love thinks no evil of others. Who's the accuser of the brethren? Satan. So Satan's going to always come to you and say, you know, that believer, he doesn't really like you. She doesn't really like you. You know, your spouse, here's all the flaws with, with your spouse. You know, your church, that your church is rotten. Here's all the reasons why. And where's that coming from? Satan. He wants us to think evil of other believers. So love, the blood of Jesus, comes in and goes, you know, I'm not going to think evil of them. This will change our lives if we'll begin to take our thoughts captive of how we think about other believers and about ourselves. Don't think evil about yourself. Think about yourself in terms of you're loved by God. God's created you. You're the son of God. You're, you're the daughter of God. And think of others that way. You know what? God loves them. God died for them. They're God, God's child. Satan's trying to rip me off here. He's trying to get me to, to think evil of them. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. I don't know why, but there's something attractive about sin. There's something about it that, that wants us to rejoice in it, that wants us to participate in it. Love doesn't do that. Jesus wasn't attracted to sin. He didn't rejoice in sin. He didn't allow his, his heart and his mind to swim in the bath of iniquity, if you would. Nope, I'm, I got to turn that off. I'm not going to rejoice in that. My flesh wants to, to gravitate towards that. Sometimes when we hear of someone who's been wronged and they start to share with us, you know, this is what so-and-so did, did to me and I just want to get him back. Yeah, you should get him back. Oh yeah, go for it. Man, if I was in that situation, I would have dropped the hammer. You know what I'm saying? Well, wait a second. That's returning evil for evil. Love doesn't rejoice in, in, in iniquity. Again, Jesus is the example of this, but rejoices in the truth, take, takes joy in the truth. The truth sets us free. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Sometimes we just get a real live example of love, don't we? 
Or we just see believers loving on other believers, loving on people that don't know Christ as their Savior. People bearing things that you can't even imagine that they would bear. Where does that come from? It's the love of God. Believes all things. It's this attitude that's hopeful. It's this attitude of saying, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. How many times when people come to us, we're already going, ah, you're not being honest with me. You know, it's hard, isn't it? But to believe all things, to hope all things, to assume the best and come in with this mindset, I'm going to go the distance with you. I'm going to endure all things with you. So this is the virtue. This is the aspects of love, the definition of love. And then we see the permanence of love in verses 8 through 12. Love never fails. Never fails. How many things can you ascribe to with the guarantee that it's never going to fail? My golf game never fails. The Denver Broncos never fail. The stock market always fails. You know. <laughs> love never fails. What really matters in life? Love. You can't go wrong in life if you choose on a daily basis to say, God, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love people. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love people. God, you love me. I want to choose to love others. It will never fail. It will never go wrong. It doesn't mean that love always gets the results that we want. God loves perfectly, but it doesn't always result in what he intended. Why? Because he gives people a personal choice, doesn't he? He loves the world. But is all of the world saved? No, because people have to respond to his love. So don't get the wrong idea. Well, if you love in every relationship, that means that you're going to have no rejection, no sorrow, no pain. It's going to be easy sailing. No, no, that's not true. It's never going to fail in that you're going to be able to rest at night going, I don't have any regrets. I can't control the outcome. People have choices. I, I can't re- control how the person's going to respond to me on the freeway, but I'm really glad I didn't flip them off. And then they saw my RMC sticker. And then they realized I was the pastor, you know. <laughs> Lord, thank you. Thank you that I was not provoked on, on the highway, right? It never fails. Love never fails. It's permanent. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they, they will cease. So sometimes someone's going to prophesy wrong. They're not going to get it right. They're going to get up and speak a word of prophecy. They're going to speak a word of prophecy to you, but it'll fail. It wasn't from the Lord. Where their tongues, they'll cease. They really emphasize tongues in the church of Corinth, speaking in tongues, that we'll deal more with next week in chapter 14. But there'll be times when there aren't gifts of tongues, where God's not moving in that way, in that particular service. This is true for all of us. Where there's knowledge, it will vanish away. <laughs> One thing that I'm noticing is throughout my 20s, a lot of information that I put in here was just very easily accessible. It was just, damn, it was there. Boom, there it is. And now it's like this. It, it, and then sometimes it's just like this. It's just not there anymore. That knowledge that's there, it's just, it's just vanished away. And it takes a little bit longer to get that information that's out, that's in there. So if you're in your teens or your 20s, just enjoy it. Keep doing all that studying. You won't remember it when you're 37 anyway. (laughs) It does vanish away. But love never fails. Love is permanent. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. So 
our understanding is limited. And he gives us these great understandings, these great truths of, of how we have limited information. But with that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Heaven is perfect. Beholding God is perfect. Entering into his presence is perfect. And when we come to that place, we'll have full knowledge. He gives this example of when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. So right now, we only know in part. We really only have a child's understanding compared to when we go home to be with the Lord. He continues this line of thinking, for we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Isn't that powerful? Heaven is going to be so wonderful because we're going to have full knowledge of God. Right now, we, we see in a mirror. We, we see a reflection. We see dimly. We, we have a dim understanding of who God is. And it's phenomenal. But imagine seeing God face to face. And what does the scripture tell us? When we see him, then we'll be like him. He fully knows us. He knows us way better than we know ourselves. But when we see him, we're going to fully know him. Isn't that going to be phenomenal? And, and that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying we only have a partial understanding right now, but we will have a full understanding and a full knowledge. And he sums it up. This is the conclusion. What really matters, verse 13. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So what remains? What, what really remains in life, what really matters in life is faith. What is faith? Trust God, who he is, his word, his promises. That's a huge part of our, our Christian life, to, to walk in faith and trust of the Lord. What's hope? Hope is this confident expectation of coming good. God, you're in control. You're working. You are good. You do good. Faith and hope, they go together. But the greatest of these is love because love is the expression of faith and hope. If I have faith in God and I trust God, if I have hope in God, then that's going to be expressed in love. It's the outpouring of what God has done and what he has poured into our hearts and our lives. What's the focus of our lives? God, I want to know your love. I want your love to impact my heart. I want it to explode in my life like a bomb. And then, Lord, help me to be able to, to love others. So consider a couple things with me. What have we seen tonight? We've seen the priority of love. We've seen the virtues of love. We've seen the permanence of love. Is there a certain aspect of love that the Lord has highlighted to you to really pray about and take home with you tonight? And then how is God's love impacting you? As we take communion tonight, do you really believe that God loves you? Do you really believe that he suffers long with you and that he's kind towards you? Or do you think God's kind of sick of you? Oh yeah, you're still his child, but you know, he knows everything that you thought today and he really doesn't want to spend time with you. No, that's not God's heart at all. He died, all of your sins paid for, it's been washed away. You're his son, you're, you're his daughter. He's kind towards you, he's long-suffering towards you, and really come in contact with God's love. So I want you to sit back, give me five minutes, I'm gonna tell you an experience that we had as a family this week. It's a week ago Wednesday. I'm painting in my basement, going around an outlet, doing some of the, the trim work. 
phone rings upstairs. We still have a landline at our house. Can you believe that? Like, so the landline rings. I go up and check the caller ID. It's my mom. I don't answer it. I don't pick up the phone because I'm painting. You moms are looking at me like, this was good painting time, ladies, right here. All the kids were gone with Amber, and I'm, I'm getting some painting done. I'll, I'll call her back, right? And so a few minutes later, I hear the kids come in the kitchen. I'm still in the basement, and Hannah picks up my cell phone, our oldest daughter, and it's my mom, and she's talking with my mom, and Hannah comes down, and then I can tell that something serious has, has happened. And so, you know, my mom gets on the phone, and she says, you know, your, your dad's had a tough day today. He, uh, he's gotten really confused. Uh, you know, Matt, my brother, he lives up in Denver. My dad lives in Denver. Was going over this list with him, and he, he wasn't able to focus on the list, and so we've had to go to the emergency room, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. So this is a week ago today. So I'm like, I'm there. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm done with working in the basement and drive up to, to Littleton. The hospital's just off C, C-470 in Broadway. And I get into the emergency room, and it was a really busy day at the emergency room. If, if you work in the emergency room, Lord bless you. It's a tough, tough job. You know, they're... At this particular hospital, I hadn't seen anything quite like it. They, they would come over the intercom and they would say, you know, trauma unit to room 14, we've got cardiac arrest, es- estimated time of arrival 10 minutes. Just ambulances coming in and out all afternoon. So in the midst of this, all my dad's vitals are good, but he's going in and out of, of uh, sleep and, and, and kind of clarity and, and confusion. And at one moment he would say, everything that made sense. He knew what was going to happen Friday, and he'd ask you about this and that, and then, then other moments, he just completely confused, and conversation didn't, didn't make sense. This is going on, on for hours. And for some of you that have gone to church here for a while, you know just how important my dad is in my life. Um, I've just been super blessed uh, by my dad. And so as I'm driving up to, to Denver, I'm really moved by this. You know, I, I'm really concerned about what's happening and his memory and his confusion and what, what things are going to be like in, in the days to come. And I just felt the Lord really impressing upon me, like, Eric, don't move away from the pain of this. Like, just sit in this for a while. Like you, I want to teach you something. There's, there's things that you need to learn out, out of this. I was listening to some worship music in my car, and God just brought back to me a lot of memories that I have with my dad, and things like him teaching me how to dribble basketball at young age of three, four years old, to him coming home from work and wrestling with me on the carpet, you know, and just throwing me around, and as a little boy getting thrown around and wrestled, that's the best thing ever, you know, and just, you know, from just sitting on the couch with him and putting my head, laying my head on, on his chest. To, I mean, there's not one basketball game that I can remember not looking up on the stands and him not being there. And I was just thinking about all of these things, and I had been reading over this passage knowing that I'd be teaching on 1 Corinthians 13, and that was it. That's what the Lord was showing me. Your dad got it right. It's love. What really matters? It's love. He, 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 he did it. He, he loved in the way that God intended. 
And as I was sitting in the room and the room was dark and all of his vitals were good and my mom was sitting next, next to me, I was thinking about what does matter, what, what really matters. And it wasn't his job. It wasn't all those years that my dad spent as an engineer and he worked hard. He was a faithful provider for our family and we're thankful for that. But in that moment, it wasn't his job that mattered. You know what mattered? is how he treated people at his job. It wouldn't have mattered if he was an engineer or a trash collector or a school teacher or an accountant or president or pastor. It doesn't matter. The job title, the job function doesn't matter. It, it's who you are as a person in the midst of that. In that moment, it made no difference the size of his house. No difference what neighborhood he lived in. No difference what kind of car he drove. Didn't matter what kind of money was in the bank or what wasn't on the bank. Didn't matter where he goes on vacation. None of that stuff mattered. One thing mattered. And you know what it was? It was love. It was love. And thankfully, about 5.15, I'm looking at the clock. My mom went home to grab some of her clothes because they were going to have to spend the night. He starts coming out of it. And it was like, he's back. And he was feeling good and he was feeling fine. And they're, sure, they're still not completely sure what happened. They, they think it's something called TIA, uh, which if you're in the medical field is like an artery uh, starts to have pressure, so you have a temporary stroke. And then once the pressure's off the artery, everything comes back and his memory came back and his clarity came back. Could have been a minor stroke. They're working things out. He's continuing to go to the doctor and things are are looking uh, pretty good. And we we're so thankful. He couldn't remember the events, some of the events of that day, but we're so thankful that he is, is doing well. And it, and it just, it's amazing how fragile life is. If people have strokes and they're never the same. You probably have loved ones that have had a stroke and that morning they're fine, they had the stroke and then their life here on this earth is never gonna be the same. It's amazing to me. And then God just took this truth of saying, you know what, this is what really matters is love. And I'm not gonna sit here and lie through my teeth tonight. I don't have this figured out, you know? There's so much of 1 Corinthians 13 that is extremely convicting. There's so much of this that goes, God, I am, I'm so far from this. But I do know this, that God is this. And this is the way he loves us. And this is what really matters in our life. This is what really counts. None of it counts except for this, loving God and loving others, and it is that, that simple. So as we take communion tonight, let's really enjoy God's love. Let's really meditate upon it. Let's believe it. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us. And then and sit in some points of pain in your life, you know? If there's some pain going on in your life, just sit in it tonight for a little bit. Instead of complaining about it or wanting to get out of it or why is this happening, all the thoughts and things I was feeling as well, let's go, okay, God, what do you want to teach me? What are you, what are you saying to me? Because this is what I know. In my life, being conformed to the image of Christ doesn't happen through the good times. I wish it did. Most of the time, it happens through the pain. And God uses the pain, he uses the suffering to go, okay, Eric, I'm going to use this in your life to make you more like Jesus. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Where we hear it, we say it, we declare it to others. But we ask tonight, as we celebrate communion, that you would show us your love afresh. 
that you administer to our hearts. Lord, you know each person here tonight. And Lord, would you do a work that only you can do in all of us, Father? Would you really bless this time of communion? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.